Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm not. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. We are so excited to welcome Peter Ensminger to the podcast. I'm going to let Peter give his educational and professional background shortly. And I did want to note that for today's episode, Sam could not be here with us. So it's going to be me kind of going through all these questions and having this conversation with uh, with Peter. But we miss her dearly, and she will be on the next episode. So welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for being here. And if you could just provide your educational and professional background, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. And uh, yeah, shucks that Sam couldn't join us, but definitely happy to be on the pod and um, spend some time talking about affordable housing. So my name is Peter Ensminger. I am the Director of Development at Accelerate Housing Group in where headquartered in Long Beach, California, we're a developer of affordable housing. Um, And we really work statewide. So both in LA County, um, as well as as well as in the rest of the state. In terms of my background, if you had told me, you know, 10, 15 years ago that I would end up in affordable housing, I would have laughed. I was an English major at a liberal arts college. uh, here in Southern California, I got my undergrad at Pomona College, and then spent a couple of years in education, teaching in, um, you know, kind of like an AmeriCorps-funded Teach for America-style position in Boston. Got interested in affordable housing. Sorry, got interested in urban planning through observing my students' interactions with um, commuting to school and food okay. access mostly. And then got interested in urban planning through that, right? And, um, you know, enough so that I considered a career change um, for a variety of reasons. Teaching wasn't a great fit for me at that time, at that grade level. So I applied to schools and found my way down to USC, um, where I studied urban planning. And through that was where I learned about affordable housing for the first time. Um, And then, yeah, let's see. Before working at Accelerate, I worked at uh, for about four years at the Skid Row Housing Trust in uh, Skid Row, downtown Los Angeles. And before that, I worked for an affordable housing financial consultant who did a lot of kind of technical advising on funding applications and pro formas and basically helping short-staffed developers get done what they needed to get done in order to, you know, move whatever stage of their projects were move them forward uh so yeah that's and that's been about 11 10 years that i've been working in affordable housing in in some way shape or form so yeah that's amazing and sam and i always talk about on the podcast especially when we meet you know so many different people in the field the path to urban planning is not necessarily linear for everyone. So, you know, kind (laughs) of like discovering the field is always, there's always some very interesting backstory. And so how you kind of had this experience in education and started seeing Mm -hmm. the interactions with students in their built environment or Mm -hmm. the accessibility that they had to certain resources kind of then pushing you into the field, that's just such an interesting pathway. And so now you are in affordable housing development. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. 
we kind of wanted to have a discussion with you about that today. And so do you think you could just share with us what a typical day would look like for you at work in regards to housing development for affordable housing? Yeah, sure. So we're a pretty small company. There's just four of us. Um, so though my title is director of housing development, um, there's a lot of different roles that that I play. Um, and it's generally like, you know, one of my favorite things about the job is that no two days are exactly alike. Yeah. Um, there's as a developer, it kind of behooves you to be a jack of a jack of all trades. Um, because one day, you know, you might be working with bankers, with lenders, um, you know, trying to secure financing in the form of a mortgage for a project that's about to go, you know, that might go into construction later that year. Or you might be working with a CDFI, a, like a community development financial institution, to obtain an acquisition or pre-development loan for something that's you know, much earlier in the pipeline that still lives mostly on paper, you know, and by the same token, other days are spent with, um, you know, coordinating on calls with contractors and architects about, you know, does the width of the doorway to the laundry room comply with accessibility requirements? You know, there, there's a lot of specificity. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that keeps me on my toes mm -hmm. and is definitely an exercise in asking a lot of questions mm -hmm. because there's a lot of stuff that um, I get involved with where I don't really I don't really know the answers but there are people that we employ whether they're consultants or um, you know architects who should know the answer and so the question or what falls to me is really like making sure that you know, any assumptions that people have internalized get externalized so that we all have the same starting point, um, the same goals, and the same understanding of, of, of whatever the issue is at hand. So just making sure that everybody's sharing all that information so that any inconsistencies um, get, get brought to light. So yeah, gosh. Um, going out for like a, a meet and greet after this with um, a lender that we've worked with on a few different projects and, you know, that we hope to do business with in the future. So that's, that'll be the back half of, of my Friday afternoon. <laughs> that's you know, so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the, the stages of housing development are all so different and they do require mm -hmm. so many different steps and the timelines are also very different. So like you said, a day mm -hmm. is never usually going to be the same when it comes to housing development. Mm -hmm. And in regards to, you know, we talk about market rate housing, we talk about affordable housing. Can you kind of explain to our listeners what are some of the differences between building market rate housing versus building affordable housing? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's one of the interesting, like, wrinkles of working in kind of a mission-aligned niche of the real estate market is that you know we have some interests in common with community organizers and we also have some interests in common with like large well-capitalized real estate development companies um so and especially like i said earlier you know my, my background is a little bit in teaching and and the liberal arts so i am 
you know, don't always identify as like a, a real estate type. So I will, you know, my impressions of the market rate world are, are definitely from the outside looking in. But what I'll say is that um, we'll start with the similarities, right? What we build and what the market rate folks build exist in three dimensions on a map. And then we have to go through the same permitting process mm-hmm. through, you know, the city and all the different city departments that need to approve things. We have to comply with all the same building codes. Um, we also both have to buy land on the open market. And we're frequently in competition with each other when it comes to buying land. Um, and that's an area where affordable developers can sometimes be at a disadvantage since they're generally, you know, I work for a for-profit company um, and there are a decent amount of for-profit companies working in the affordable space. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of nonprofits um, and affordable housing companies generally aren't as well capitalized, Mm -hmm. shall we say, as some of the larger, some of the market rate developers who can, you know, put down an all cash offer and do a 30 day close on a, on a piece of land. You know, we might need time to, um, you know, put together some financing, at least at the very least put together an acquisition loan, um, and that is more of a, you know, 120 to 180 day timeline when you combine that with some of the research that we need to do about, you know, verifying that the site is viable and that it's clean and has all the other features that we'd need. So those are some of the areas where, you know, the three-dimensional aspects is, is fairly similar. Um, once you get into how the developments are financed. Mm-hmm. Um, the picture starts to, to diverge a little bit more, but even within that, there's still some similarities. The market rate financing is generally entirely driven by the rents, mm-hmm. whatever rent a building can command, whatever rent the residents will end up paying determines how much cash the building will generate, which determines how quickly the building or the developer can pay off the mortgage that they take out to to build the whole thing. And also what size mortgage. So that um, exercise is essentially at the core of market rate development. Essentially what, what rents do we think we can command in approximately 24 months when the building opens or whatever times period they're looking at, Mm -hmm. what can we do to make sure those rents are as high as they can be? Right. Uh, or if it's like, well, we're definitely going to be doing more of a like a workforce housing, mm-hmm. you know, what sort of features do we, you know, everything's driven around the rent by the rent yeah. space is the bottom line. Um, and in affordable housing, the rents are still very important, but for different reasons, you know, we're trying to figure out, um, you know, what is the best fit of affordability? So being able to serve the target populations that we're looking for Mm -hmm. um, while also trying to ensure that we can generate something of a mortgage from those rents, which then offsets the amount of funding we need from the city or from the state or from the county. And so that's really the the, the trade-off, right? Is um, because the rents are so much lower, we apply for funding from other you know, public sources that enable us to set the rents really low. And there's also a lot of heterogeneity in in that process. 
right? Like affordable housing, I guess it's also worth saying that affordable housing, as I'm talking about it, is like capital A, capital H, affordable housing mm-hmm. with um, income qualifications. So this isn't this isn't the affordable housing that one as a recent college grad is probably looking for, you know, where you just need a, a place that's not going to break the bank. This is affordable housing that will, um, you know, you need to submit copies of your most recent tax returns to verify that your income meets the eligibility requirements in, um, you know, for the year applying for. Um, and so within that, within that field, right, like there are anywhere from 80% area median income units, everything is expressed as a percentage of, you know, the county that you live in or the county that the project is located in, the median income for that county in that year, so 80% of the median income in LA County for this year for a household of one is $66,000 approximately. Um, so that would be kind of on the upper end of the population served by affordable housing here in LA. On the lower end, a 30% AMI unit, again, 30% of area median income in LA County, household size one is $25,000. So if you're a single person making less than 25,000, you could qualify for a 30% AMI unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's obviously a pretty different population, right, than the 80% AMI unit, one person making 66,000. Um, and then even beyond that, there's, you know, occasional incentives, or I say occasional, that's that's the wrong word. There are frequent incentives to, um, you know, house special needs populations, folks who have experienced homelessness, folks who have experienced, um, you know, could be anything from uh, developmental disorders, um, transition age youth, emerging out of the foster care system. So all of those different populations, you know, come with different needs mm-hmm. and so when you're putting together an affordable housing development you need to have some pretty clear initial um goals and intentions of you know who are you going to house what ami range are they mm-hmm. and given those assumptions how are you going to finance it right and, and that's an iterative process and sometimes you know i know in in California and LA County in particular in the last five to seven years, a lot of new funding has become available for um, affordable housing that serves the homeless. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, you know, more units get set aside for serving the homeless, which which is good. That's what we want, right? But what I'm trying to say is that developers, affordable housing developers, like other developers, will will follow the funds. And so if the funds carry restrictions around um you know affordability targeting or special needs slash homeless occupancy requirements then you know we'll follow those requirements right and i think it's important to highlight as well that there's a lot more nuance in affordable housing development because again you are serving different kinds of populations as and especially mm-hmm. in regards to their different income levels and mm-hmm. so currently we're facing a very severe housing shortage in the state of California and mm-hmm. a backlog has just been growing. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so the need for affordable housing is also growing as well. And so in your experience, can you kind of identify what the most pressing challenges have been to get affordable housing on the ground as quickly as possible? Because there are often a lot of conversations, for instance, where people will say, oh, well, it costs, you know, you hear all these estimates, a million dollars per unit or, mm-hmm. you know, some some kind of figure like that. And that's why it's taking so long because it's so expensive to build. Are there other challenges or can you kind of discuss if, if you know, those figures are accurate and kind of address address that that issue and challenge? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, there are no shortage of challenges yeah. when it comes to building affordable housing. And cost is definitely one of them. Um, and I think, you know, and then funding availability is probably mm-hmm. the the other principal uh, challenge. Right. And so I'd say, you know, starting with costs, you know, we build a lot of the same, like I said, like all of the same product type, you know, multifamily apartment buildings, um, you know, with wood, you know, four floors of wood over one floor of concrete that not the market rate folks do. Mm-hmm. There are some additional requirements that affordable housing generally needs to hit that are, you know, optional, frankly, for um for market developers, you know, frequently to be competitive for funds, um, affordable housing will need to be lead certified or potentially lead silver or potentially lead gold. Um, and that can add a decent amount of costs. There is also requirements. I mean, especially in a, in housing that serves, it's planned to serve the homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we think about, Permanent supportive housing, i.e., you know, housing for the homeless is, is permanent. It's like an annual lease. This is not a shelter. Um, and it's supportive in that there's space on site for supportive services. We think about permanent supportive housing as almost like a different asset class from multifamily. Like it's multifamily housing crossed with like supportive living, like an assisted living facility. Like it's not all the way toward assisted living, but there are elements of the design of the building and the um, materials that we use that are closer to an assisted living facility than, um, you know, straight up, you know, multifamily housing. And that can be everything from the orientation and arrangement of the common areas to, you know, kind of single access points into the building to, um, you know, for security purposes, right? And then to, um, you know, having additional space on site for for offices for for case managers and for staff members. So those are items that can that can drive costs in certain areas. Um, the main cost driver in most affordable housing work is that, as a general rule, most public funding in the state of California triggers the payment of either state prevailing wages or federal prevailing wages. Um, those are frustratingly <laughs> similar, but not identical and independently triggered by different sources. Mm-hmm. So you have to, frequently you have to pay the higher of, of whichever one applies if, if they both apply. Um, and that alone can add 20 to 25% onto the, the construction cost of a project. And then I guess the other, you know, 
affordable housing certainly exists in in a context in the United States, right? Like there are, um, you know, there's been a long history of public housing developments that have been kind of highly visible political liabilities, shall yeah. we say? Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about the popular imagination of affordable housing and you think about projects like the Pruitt Igo or Cabrini Green in Chicago. Um, so public agencies now have long had um, strong incentives to ensure that new affordable housing that gets built is beautiful and well-planned and, you know, has, you know, enough funding set aside for operations and has appropriate staffing. So there's, there's a lot of regulations in that that are very well-intentioned um, and which also can, you know, increase the costs of a project because they want to ensure that something is, is, is really high quality because they're reacting to, um, or at least they've inherited a political reality that reacted to, um, you know, reacted to the past. So all of those things pooled together can drive the costs of affordable housing a little bit higher than um, than market rate housing. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that, you know, when you're working with taxpayer dollars, um, every, you know, and say you're in construction and you get the, you know, the monthly invoice from your contractor saying, hey, we build, you know, we did a million dollars worth of drywall and cement and concrete and wood framing this this month, you know, can you pay us? And we say, sure, let us review it. And we then do our internal review. And obviously we need to send that to one, potentially two, potentially three different funding sources for them to all independently review. And so the long story short is that takes time. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, this is my hunch, I haven't seen literature on this, but the contractor pool that will work on affordable housing jobs in LA County is a little bit smaller than the market rate um, contractor pool because we work with contractors. I think contractors who do affordable housing know that it's going to take them an extra you know, 15 to 30 to 45 days to get paid. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you know, they work with larger subcontractors. They work with, they are themselves larger general contractors because they need to be able to float payroll mm -hmm. a little bit longer. Right. Um, and so not being able to dive down and access some of the, um, for lack of a more formal description, scrappier subcontractors who might be a little bit more um, competitive in their pricing, you know, we tend to work with low risk, very stable, larger, um, you know, larger contractors. And like with the reliability and the quality and the ability to, you know, float their payroll, like, you know, they, they some of those costs get passed on to us, right? right. Um, and I think that's all reasonable right because when you have taxpayer dollars you know the city should audit the monthly billing from a contractor to make sure that they're not putting fluff or you know that there's nothing improper happening right. and i think that well 
fraud has happened in affordable housing, it's it's vanishingly rare because there are so many different checks and balances between, you know, the city reviewing a draw, the county reviewing a draw, the investor or the senior lender reviewing a draw. There's there's just too many eyes on it. Mm-hmm. So to to try to, um, you know, put a, pull out any funny business. Right. So that's a, a very long way of saying cost is a challenge. Yeah. Um, and I think the other side of it is 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 funding is a challenge, you know, and, and those are certainly related, right? If costs go down, then funding becomes less of an issue. But I think that what folks don't always understand is the historical context of affordable housing is that it's not very well invested in, in the United States. Right. Um, and then also in, in particular in, in California relative to how it has been in the past. Um, for a long time in California, the largest source of affordable housing funds were redevelopment agencies, which were uh, dissolved in, I think, 2011 by Governor Jerry Brown in his second second stint in office. And so kind of overnight, the amount of funding for affordable housing fell off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And in the past, so it was, you know, what, about, 12 years ago now. So over the course of those 12 years, there have been replacement state funding sources that have popped up. There have been some replacement local funding sources that have popped up. But that's essentially been to get us back to to zero, you know, the amount of funding adjusted for inflation where we were in 2011. I think we've now hit that in particular with some of the um, funding streams that came out of the the pandemic relief. so when we are continually advocating for more funding and more funding and more funding, it, it's not just because the cost of building is growing ever higher. And so the same resources aren't going as far, which is true, but it's also like, you know, the amount of resources needed is just completely out of whack with, with the demand for, for affordable housing. Um, you know, there's, you know, something like 60,000 homeless people in the in the city of LA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are questions right now about whether there are even enough, you know, Section 8 vouchers right. to, to house, you know, <laughs> to get through a couple more um, funding cycles. Yeah. So, you know, the, that's like the level of conversation that we're having. Um, and so in that regard, I'm excited about, you know, some local measures here in LA, like the um um i've already forgotten the name ula the oh yeah united to house la which i think would bring the funding in la more comparable to what it is in a city like new york city right um and create the kind of resources to have like robust annual production of both um, affordable housing for low-income families but also affordable housing for the homeless Mm-hmm. in a way that measure HHH, the bond measure that was passed in, I think, 20, 2016, you know, it successfully has created thousands of units, but it's also a one-time funding source. Right. So that's not going to, um, you know, for a couple of years now, they've, in, you know, the last funding from it was awarded a few years ago. And so those projects are just now coming into construction mm-hmm. and should be coming online in the next, you know, 24 months. So, yeah, I think that there's, you know, the severe housing shortage is, 
you can you can trace a direct line from the lack of investment in affordable housing resources. And you know, getting on my wheelhouse here for a minute, I'm not an economist, but I think that there's also a, a larger housing market argument to be made that when um, cities overall make it difficult to produce housing or expensive to produce housing, that trickles down. Um, in that you know makes it harder for everybody to to um to afford rent or to afford a home um yeah absolutely i think as well you know in the same in the same facet that you're discussing the challenges with producing affordable housing i don't think it's you know on the market rate side i don't think it's nearly as challenging but it definitely has been getting market rates mm-hmm. on the on the ground has not been you know very quick and it's also not Mm -hmm. been as you know as readily available as it once was and even just looking at you know our transition from the amount of permits we were that the amount of permits that were provided for market rate housing you know in the early 2000s even before then is nowhere near what we're Mm -hmm. what we're getting now it's significantly lower And there is a theory about the way in which there's kind of this, um, I don't, I think it's called filtering, um, Mm -hmm. in which, you know, opening up new market rate units can allow new people to enter into older units that might be a little bit more affordable. And so there's, there's Mm -hmm. a whole conversation around that. And I think it's a challenge on both sides. And I think that's what's causing such significant affordability issues because, it's not affordable across the board, you know, for, for so many, for so many folks. And just hearing the stats of people who are paying over 30% of their income, that being, you know, comprising yeah. of almost half the population, it's yeah. a significant challenge and burden for many folks. And you kind of touched upon the kind of special amenities or, kinds of things that are incorporated in affordable housing that you guys will Mm -hmm. add to units that make Mm -hmm. it a little bit more expensive. Is there anything that you can identify that might be missing from affordable housing developments that you think either needs more attention or should be incorporated more? Would it be wraparound services or additional amenities? Is there anything that you've seen in your experience that might, you know, highlight some, some more need on the affordable housing side? You know, um, to be honest, I think that there's really not that much miss. If I understand the question right, there's not that much missing from affordable housing developments. If, if anything, I think that streamlining and simplifying the regulatory process yeah. would would help. Um, and you know, because there's, you know, the formula, the recipe for the kind of uh, the low income housing tax credit program, which produces the the vast lion's share, bar none, of affordable housing in the United States since 1986, um, is that, you know, it low income housing tax credits provide anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of your budget, and then you need to find, um, you know usually two, sometimes three, sometimes four other public funding sources to fill the gap. And each of those funding sources can have their own respective requirements. 
and uh you know like like i was saying earlier that that can drive costs um and potentially slow the the development process as well so i think that you know for the most part the affordable housing development industry is is pretty stable most folks who have been developing it have been doing it for some time and as a result have portfolios and expertise and background to draw on to say like okay this worked on this project let's do it again um and so i think if those requirements were simplified or in some cases eliminated where they're redundant you know like if you know low-income housing tax credits have their own minimum construction standards which are and of course all above and beyond what exists in um, California building code, which everybody has to meet no matter what, you know, if there's more of an ability to just rely on what's in the code, I think that that could, um, you know, that could make a dent in some of the costs that that we see. I mean, one note that, um, you know, I wanted to make, uh, jumping slightly to what you're saying about the filtering piece that made me think of, you know, market rate housing and, mm-hmm. and costs is that they uh, like market rate developers like affordable housing developers are you know everybody's trying to mitigate risk trying to mitigate timing risk mm-hmm. um trying to figure out how much cushion exists in their financial models for you know what happens if rents go down what happens if rents go up and when there's uncertainty in the development process you know as a result like you, you need to insulate yourself a little bit from that risk. And one common way that, um, you know, market rate developers will insulate themselves from risk is by, you know, trying to drive up the cost of rent with whatever amenities they suite of amenities they feel is necessary to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if the permitting process and the regulatory process just generally in California were simplified or easier, which is certainly a pipe dream that's, you know, <laughs> not not going to happen in our lifetimes but if, if that were substantially simplified you know that would en- enhance the predictability of what can happen and i think that might entice uh, margaret developers to be a little bit more aggressive absolutely in a socially useful way to yeah. like, okay i think that a development with two thousand dollar rents is going to pencil Let's do it rather than feeling like, okay, I think we really need to target 2,500 because like, I don't know, we might get this to go forward this year, might get this to go forward next year, hard to say. We've got interest that we're paying on these loans, who knows what's gonna happen, um, you know? So I, I think that that's, that's one area where um, I think affordable housing developers and market developers have, have a kind of overlap in interest. Definitely. But I think there's also, you know, challenges to that because if you remove some of the complexities of permitting, you know, new developments, that also can be interpreted in some quarters as kneecapping urban planning, you know, like folks who want to ensure that there's a robust public process in terms of what happens in a neighborhood um, or, you know, boutique zoning updates to try to create a very specific outcome in the specific geography all of those are great intentions too yeah you know like we can't we can't lose sight of that and that's why i say it's it's never really gonna um 
get simplified with a capital S because there, there, there's, there's too much democratic process. That's too important to just leave out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a significant balancing act and one that I don't think we have figured out yet, but I think there are a lot of folks that are really trying to figure out ways in which we can streamline processes and make it easier for both affordable housing and market rate housing developers to just be able to produce more housing more efficiently and mm-hmm. also stick within, you know, the timelines that they're trying to stay within. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've had very, you know, significant experience in the affordable housing development sector. Can you just share with us maybe one or two of your favorite career experiences working in the affordable housing development sector? Yeah, sure. That is a good question. <laughs> I mean, like I said, one of my favorite parts about the job is that no two days are alike and each project has its own distinct challenges. And so as a result, you end up um, being forced to learn a lot in a certain amount, in a short amount of time about something that's very specific, like on our Long Beach deal. I, I would call this a favorite because I'm a masochist, but I had to learn a lot about oil wells because our site <laughs> had three abandoned oil wells that hadn't been in production since the 1920s you know there is an existing office building over them when we bought the sites we thought oh there was no problem and we very quickly learned how how very wrong (laughs) (laughs) that um and so we spent you know several months working with a variety of petroleum engineers and other consultants and long story short like every petroleum expert in Southern California is based out of Bakersfield and half of them have Texas accents. Like it's this (laughs) sub industry (laughs) that, you know, you see around you as you drive around because there's, there's oil wells in in parts of LA. Um, What we had on our side is not those, you know, these aren't like the, um, the oil derricks that are bobbing up and down. They were, you know, you would never know that anything was there uh, unless you like, (laughs) did some digging in the environmental archives. So, you know, I, I really enjoy stuff like that, doing doing deep dives into uh, niche fields and then kind of learning enough about them to ask better questions and make sure yeah. that you, you get what you need. Um, I mean, I think also there's, you know, I remember when I was at Skidrow Housing Trust, the just by coincidence, the projects that I worked on there were um, all renovations. Skid Row Housing Trust, as a, as an older organization, relatively speaking, I think they were they date to the late '80s. Um, they had a a lot of developments that they completed in the early '90s, and so when I was there from 2015 to 2019, you know those developments are. Uh, we're 25, 20, 25 years old for the most part. And so there was like this bulge in the portfolio that needed a lot of um needed a lot of attention, a lot of upgrades, um, you know, code updates, safety updates, but also cosmetic updates, also standards changed. Like the buildings that were built in the early 90s didn't have um case manager offices for folks to provide services. So we wanted to add in you know, case management offices to enhance the services that that they provided on site. In one case, we added an elevator to a three-story building that didn't have an elevator. 
Um, so there's like a whole, you know, adding air conditioning, right, was another big one. So the positioning these buildings for getting recapitalized and reinvested was extraordinarily complicated because there are people living in them. <laughs> so you have to find a way to temporarily, temporarily relocate folks and then move them back into units. And um, we worked with the residents for, you know, over a year before construction actually started doing outreach to kind of determine what scopes they wanted to see, what kind of wish list items they had. Um, and, you know, construction is a bumpy road, right? It can be noisy, it can be messy. Um, there are, you know, planned utility shutoffs that were, um, you know, for which residents were compensated for whenever they ran more than four or five hours because it impinged on their ability to cook. Um, and then there are unplanned utility outages when, you know, some, something goes wrong and they need to shut off water. So, you know, it's it was a bumpy road. And I, I think one of the things I'm most proud of was managing the relationships with the residents in these two buildings that we were updating simultaneously, you know, and that involved a lot of like being on site mm -hmm. you know, two, three times a week to kind of check in and so that they felt like, okay, this isn't just some callous process where you're, you know, just casting this aside, but you're actually showing up. Like we, there's some reliable follow through here. Mm -hmm. And I remember helping a resident move back into his unit after um, after everything was complete. And, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? Because it's a whole lot of hassle. It's a whole lot of time spent in the run up. Um, like I said, like over a year. Right. And then they have to leave. They have to pick up all of their stuff out of their unit and they have to move to um, a different unit, a different, at a different Skid Rousing Trust building for 30 to 35 days and then move back and unpack. You know, it, it's a, it's disruptive. Yeah. Life. Yeah. And you remember him walking back in and looking around and being like, you know, like <laughs> in my head, I was imagining, imagining his monologue is like, well, goddamn, they did it. You know, like <laughs> it is an air conditioning unit in the corner of like the room now yeah. and the, the janky old heating is gone mm -hmm. and there's a new unit and there's new blinds and there's new paint and there's new furnishings and like the flooring is new and the baseboarding, the base, you know, the molding is new. Um, you know, everything was, you know, everything was new. Um, kitchen sink, we improved the vanity, you know, it, it felt really good to um, put in the work and then be able to deliver and like, you know, he gave me a fist bump and that, that <laughs> That felt really good to be like, all right, man, you know, like we're doing it. We're doing it. That's amazing. I think that's one thing that I really admire about this field or I'm I'm very excited for about this field is that each day, you know, there's so much more opportunity to learn new things. You encounter mm -hmm. so many mm -hmm. different and diverse people. Things are constantly evolving in the field of urban planning. We're learning new things. New concepts are being derived. I mean, even the evolution of community, you know, community planning and community yeah. feedback and community incorporation and, you know, public participation, all of that was evolving. And so we've seen such a transition. And then now we have, you know, this huge emphasis on equity and social justice. And mm -hmm. so again, it's just this field is constantly evolving and it it feels like you're always learning something new each and every single day. And I think yeah. that's so exciting. And then also, again, like as you were saying, you get to really see 
these projects come to life and see who they impact and how they impact those folks. And I think that's really something special. And that's something that I'm really looking forward to on the housing side of things, because I'm, as many people know, I'm very, very excited about housing development of all sorts. Um, so yeah, we need more smart brains. We need more smart brains like you and shout out to Sam and Sam. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. And I want to give you this opportunity in closing that if you have any organization or organizations that you would like to give a shout out to that you feel more people should either know about or that more people should be supporting, just please Mm -hmm. do so right now. Yeah, sure. I mean, Affordable housing is, I think, definitely part of, and, and you know, it, it's a it's a mature and it's a stable industry. Most of the affordable housing developers are, um, you know, you know they're 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 doing fine. Like they're they're hustling for the next project, and that's always a struggle. Um, so my heart always goes out to the organizations that are kind of out on the street working with the unhoused like directly you know like my work is probably more similar in in a day-to-day process to like a market rate developer in terms of i'm in an office and then i'm meeting with the bank you know blah 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 than someone who's um you know doing street outreach Mm -hmm. right like someone who works for a supportive services organization so supportive services organizations are um you know they're the ones that I I look at and think like, wow, like they have the hard job of like working, meeting people where they're at and and trying to trying to help them. So, you know, there there's a bunch in LA. Um I think of uh, and some of them do have, you know, a supportive services arm and a uh, real estate development arm, you know, an organization like LA Family Housing up in the San Fernando Valley does fantastic affordable housing development work. And they're also um, like a, you know, the main services and street outreach team and shelter provider and operator in the San Fernando Valley. So they do great stuff. Um, out on the West side, Venice Community Housing Corporation is pretty similar. They do great work on both the Pound on the pavement with their street outreach teams and um, developing new housing. And then, you know, also groups like K-Town for All that are out there holding both affordable housing developers and holding politicians and holding people accountable by saying, like, look, like, look at how bad things are. Um, you need to act. I think that measure of accountability is just is such a crucial part of the ecosystem to drive the urgency because I don't think we can be complacent with where we're at. Um, you know, we need to do more faster to, to bring people inside. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing. And again, we really appreciate having you. Miss you, Sam. <laughs> but yeah, thank yes. you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.